Church, I invite you to open with me this morning to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. It's the fourth gospel in the New Testament. We uh, finished up our series of sermons last week in Genesis, and um, this week we're going to be going to the New Testament and be here for the next six weeks together for all the way through Easter and the week beyond Easter. And so um, you can go ahead and mark your place there. We're going to walk through this carefully together. Although we're, we're going to a new sermon series, we're going back to a familiar place in Scripture today. Now this is our third trip to the Gospel of John since I've been your pastor and no, it's not that I get bored somewhere and then hop to the other place, okay? Or I'm kind of worried about you getting bored, so we go to the next place. Uh, but but we, we do intentionally stop at certain locations, uh, and we, we have a breaking point in a narrative of Scripture. So like last week, for example, uh, we finished up with the life of Abraham in Genesis, so we stopped. Well, next year, we're going to come back, and we're going to pick up right where we left off, left off and we're going to continue our journey in Genesis, and, and so you can mark your calendars for that sometime around this time next year. Uh, but this time, we're going back to John's Gospel again for the third time. But what I want to do is I understand not all of you were here for that, uh, and so I want to kind of catch us up on what we've looked at so far in this Gospel. In the first series of sermons, we looked at what were the seven I Am statements of Jesus. These were the seven statements Jesus made concerning his divinity, right? He said things like, I am the light of the world. He said things like, I am the good shepherd, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. We remember him saying all of these things. And those were clear statements of his divinity. In every case, he was saying, I am God in the flesh. But then later on, we went back to John's gospel and we looked at these seven signs or these seven miracles that happened in the life of Jesus, these seven things that he physically did. Now, we understood when we looked at that together that Jesus did more things than just those seven signs or miracles, but every one of those pointed to one of those statements, right? When he said, I am the light of the world, well, what did he do? He healed a man who was blind, and suddenly he physically had light in his life. And then he said something later on, after the raising of Lazarus, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Well, he had raised his friend, Lazarus, from death to life. And so every one of those miracles validated or gave proof to the seven statements that Jesus had made. Now, those two sections fit neatly together, right? Kind of like a puzzle. I mean, it just, it fits. Every I am statement goes with a sign or a miracle. But as we get to John 17, something changes. You see, repeatedly throughout these 14 passages we looked at, Jesus repeated a phrase that you probably missed. He frequently, frequently said this, my hour has not yet come. He said that again and again and again. He said, my hour has not yet come. Now, we probably thought that sounded a little bit strange, so we read past it. But let's go back to some of these occasions. You see, in John chapter 2 and verse 4, right before Jesus turns the water into wine, Jesus' mother Mary comes to him and is prodding him along and saying, Jesus, you got to do something to fix this awkward social situation and he responded to her rather strangely, right at the beginning of John's gospel, he said, Mother, my hour has not yet come. 
And then in John chapter 7 and verse 6, many of the supposed disciples around Jesus deserted him. Things were not looking good. This great following of people he once had had left him. And guess what he said? My hour has not yet come. And then just a chapter later in John chapter 8 and verse 20, after his claim to be the light of the world, it, it infuriated the scribes and the Pharisees because this was a clear statement of his divinity and everyone was upset. In fact, they were upset to the point they wanted to kill him. And guess what the scriptures say? He just eluded them because his hour had not yet come. You see, this leads us to a turning point in John's gospel right here in John chapter 17, and it sets the stage for the next six weeks we're going to look at. Now, I'm going to read the passage in just a moment, but I want you to notice how verse 1 begins. Check it out. Jesus spoke these things. He looked up to heaven and said the very first words out of his mouth. He says, Father, the hour has come. You see how there's a shift here? The, the narrative starts to move in a different direction. You see, the hour had come. The hour of his simultaneous humiliation and glorification on the cross of Calvary, guess what? It had come. Everything had changed. You see, Jesus had began to fix his eyes on something else in front of him. He began to realize and, and wanted others around him, his followers, to realize, guess what? Things have changed, guys. And we're headed in a different direction which is where we get the title of this series of sermons, Jesus started down the road to the cross. He started down the road to the cross. And so in other words, what I want you to think about is over the next six weeks, Jesus is, is headed towards the cross. And then on Easter morning, guess what? We're going to be headed away from the cross. And all of this is going to tell this, this beautiful picture, they paint this beautiful story of, of how Jesus' life revolved around the cross of Calvary. I invite you to stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. John chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. John chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read down through verse 5, and I'll let you be seated. Jesus spoke these things. He looked up to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you. Since you gave him authority over all flesh, so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for this sweet turning point in the life of your son, Jesus. We thank you for the gift of the cross. And God, I pray that we are encouraged this morning by what we see in your word. God, I pray that you'll help it to resonate in our lives and change us and challenge us and and Lord, encourage us as we go forth as your followers in a lost and dying world. Let your word do its full work this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. 
Now, we've got a lot of ground to cover in this chapter, but, but I want to take just a moment longer to introduce to you what we're going to be talking about specifically this morning. Many of you have, have been caught in this awkward moment where someone comes to you and says, hey, will you pray for me about this? Now, I want to ask an honest question of you. You do not have to raise your hand. How often do you forget to pray for that person? You know what I'm talking about, right? They, they come to you in a moment of need, and, and, and maybe the need is significant and serious, and they say, hey, can you, can you pray for me about this in my life? Yeah, sure, I'll be praying for you, sister or brother. I'll be praying for you. And then as quickly as you say it and you walk away, you've forgotten about all of it. Well, I've learned that about myself as well, and I realize that part of one of the most significant parts of ministry that I do for you as the church is to pray for you. And so you're going to hear me say things often like, if you come to me, I'm going to say, hey, can you, can you send me a text? Or, hey, can you call me? And, and, and something about receiving that phone call makes it resonate in my heart or my mind. Because here's what I've started doing. At the end of every day, I grab my phone and I scroll through all of the calls that I've received that day. And then I go through all the text messages I received that day. And just by looking at the phone number, it reminds me, hey, they called me and asked me to pray for them, right? Why do we do that? Why do I do that? It's because I know I'm a forgetful creature. I know that I'm going to forget to pray for you, as you so often do as well. You see, we find in this chapter, Jesus prays what is called the high priestly prayer. Write this down as we get started. Here's what he prayed for. Jesus prayed for himself his disciples, and for his church as he set out on the road to the cross. So three things we find in this chapter. He prayed for himself. He prayed for his disciples. Those were those individuals that were physically following him during his earthly ministry. And then he prayed for a future church as well. Now, here's why this is important. Jesus prayed for you. And guess what? We find this truth in Scripture. He is still living to make intercession or to pray for you. How astounding is that? I just told you that as your pastor, sometimes I forget to pray for you. And that might hurt your feelings a little bit, but guess what? Guess what? Jesus never forgets to pray for his people. He prays for his church. And how interesting is it that moments before this whole narrative begins to speed up, Right, because when we get to chapter 18, I'm telling you, the next few days of Jesus' life and his disciples' lives, it's a whirlwind. I mean, it moves at lightning pace. But before any of that happens, Jesus pauses to pray. And here's what I'm going to show you this morning, I hope. We're going to walk through this chapter, and we're going to see how Jesus specifically prays for these three things, right? Himself, his disciples, and his church. And then what I want to show you is this, how every one of those prayers were answered or are being answered now, because we love answered prayers, right? Especially when they're answered in a way that we find that is encouraging. And I'm going to show you in Scripture how every one of these prayers that Jesus prayed in John 17 were indeed answered. First of all, note this, Jesus prayed that his work would bring glory to God. Jesus prayed that his work would bring glory to God. You see, five times the word glory or glorify is used in those first five verses, which is just a few sentences. Now, this is a big church word we like to throw around, or we put it in the hymns that we sing, right, that we bring glory to his name or or something like that. But I think oftentimes it, it escapes us what those words actually mean. 
So let's, let's define this for just a second. Matt Chandler says it this way. He says, to glorify God is to make his goodness seen and celebrated. Right? So to glorify God is to make his goodness seen or evident and celebrated. Now, this is some deep water we're going to go into, but I want you to listen carefully. God is glorious and God is good whether anyone recognizes it or not. I'm going to say that one more time. God is good and God is glorious whether anyone recognizes it or not. Even if this message falls on deaf ears this morning and you pay no attention to what I'm going to share with you, God is still glorious and God is still good. Whether another person on the face of this planet responds to that invitation to know him or not, he is still glorious and he is still good. But Jesus' prayer here is that God would make his glory, his goodness, plain through his life. That's this word, glorify. In other words, to glorify is to, is to make this evident, to make this plain. Let me illustrate it for you like this. You guys have probably put together puzzles before. And you open the box, and you see just puzzle pieces everywhere. Now, it frustrates me that the puzzle just doesn't happen. I, I, would, I would much rather that way. Chaos drives me crazy. And so I'm looking at these puzzle pieces. The first thing I do is organize them. Right? I take them, I say, here's the edge pieces, and I slide them over here, and I take the other ones and put them over here. Then I start doing colors, right? I separate by color. All before I ever put the puzzle together. And guess what I do? I take the picture that's on the front of the box and I, I hold it in front of me and then I start working the puzzle. And I do the edge pieces first and I start putting it together. But here's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to make plain in front of me what's on the cover of that box. You see, the puzzle's complete. It's in disarray, but it's in the box. Every piece is there. But it needs to be put together. That's what glorifying God looks like. That's what Jesus is praying for in this moment. He says, I know all of your attributes are here, God. I know that your goodness is clear to me. But guess what? I want everything that's about to happen in my life to bring glory to you. I want to make it plain to everyone around me. Notice these three specific answered prayers of how Jesus prayed for God's glory to be known. I want you to show you how this happened. First of all, we see this. God was glorified in Christ's authority. He was glorified in Christ's authority. Notice verses 1 and 2. Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven, this posture of prayer, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. But notice this in verse 2. Since you gave him authority over all flesh. You see, this points back to something that Jesus already knew to be true, and he had taught on on many other occasions. In John chapter 10 and verse 18, just a few chapters back, Jesus is teaching his disciples. He says, no one takes it or no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. Jesus says, I have authority. I have authority. I already know this to be true. But here's what's wonderful. Jesus makes good on that authority, right? And that's how he brings glory to God. Check out what happens in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18. This is after the resurrection. 
And it's after the resurrection that he says this once again. Jesus came near to them and said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. You see, Jesus brought glory to God by his authority. You see, the reality that he had resurrected from the dead was validation and proof of Christ's authority. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I don't like authority. I don't like authority sometimes. When I see a speed limit sign, guess what? I, I want to go just a few miles above. Little known secret that I want you to know, it's a small town, word travels fast. I've been pulled over twice in Cave Spring. Listen, neither one for speeding. It, one was because I was swerving a little bit. Well, listen, when you got five kids in the car, you're going to swerve a little bit. <laughs> Pulled me over and they said, Jared, is that you? I said, yep, that's me. All the kids were petrified, right? But, but listen, we, 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 we don't like authority. It makes us shudder a little bit, right? When those blue lights came on behind me, I shuddered within myself just a little bit. I said, oh, man, this isn't good. Listen, listen carefully. Everything that Jesus did was predicated on his authority. And this authority is beautiful and it's good. We should be comforted to know that Jesus said, all authority has been given to me. This was a comforting statement to the disciples who heard it first for sure. When they were looking at the chaos around them and what had just transpired, they needed to know that he was in authority. We need to know in the chaotic world we live in, that he has authority. He has authority. But secondly, notice this in verse 3. God was glorified in Christ's intimacy. His intimacy, his nearness brought glory to God. Notice what it says in verse 3. It says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. You see, that's what separates Christianity from every other world religion. God, our God, is knowable. He's knowable. And that word know, guess what it means? It means an intimate relationship and fellowship with him. That's astounding, friends, that we get to know God like that. Listen, the same way that I know my wife, we're invited that we can know God in that way. We can know him. We can have fellowship with him. Why? Because of Jesus. I love what it says. This is a side note. I'm going to not spend too long here. But he says, this is eternal life there in verse 3. It's how he leads in. Do you see that? This is eternal life. Now, I don't know about you, but I like to make eternal life something of my own fantasy and imagination, right? Eternal life for us is, is eternal independence, that's why we talk about streets of gold and walls of jasper. That's eternity for us. But guess what the treasure of heaven is? The treasure of heaven is Jesus. The treasure of eternity is knowing God. Knowing God. Paul says Galatians chapter, in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26, he says, For through faith you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. How beautiful is that? We are sons and daughters of God because of Jesus and his intimacy. Because Jesus came near, God can be known. But finally note this. God was glorified in Christ's finished work. God was glorified in Christ's finished work. You may have missed this in verse 4. But I want you to see how Jesus talks about his work. 
He says, I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. In other words, Jesus says, it's a done deal. It's as good as finished. You may remember that in John chapter 19 and verse 30, just a couple chapters over, Jesus is hanging on the cross, and what does he say? Those three words. It is finished. Listen, Jesus' sacrifice was the answer to this prayer. You see, this work was what his life revolved around. This work was what his death revolved around. This work was what his resurrection revolved around. And so Jesus, through his sacrifice, his death, his burial, his resurrection, that finished work brought glory to God. You see, for Jesus, the praise of God was the ultimate aim of his life. Nothing else interfered with that aim. But our fleshly desire is to bring glory to ourselves. That's what we need to do with this. right? If, if this was what Jesus was about, Jesus, the Son of God, the one who was one with God, if his aim was to bring glory to God, guess what our aim should be? To bring glory to God. And guess what? When Jesus brought glory to God, it, it wasn't going to subtract from his own glory either. That's why he's Jesus. You see, when we bring glory to God, guess what we got to do? We got to set ourselves to the side. We got to lay aside our ambitions. We got to lay aside our dreams and our personal goals, our selfishness, to bring glory to God. Now, let's look at how Jesus prayed for his disciples, beginning in verse 6. We see Jesus prayed for, that his disciples would grow in faithfulness. He prayed that his disciples would grow in faithfulness. Now, again, I said this earlier, but this prayer was prayed for those who had physically walked with Jesus on the earth. These were the 12 men who had accompanied him, and he was praying specifically for them. Now, we're going to get to how he prayed for us, but I want you to see how he prayed for the disciples first. Notice this first. The word was the means of their growth. The word was going to be the means of their growth. They were going to grow in faithfulness. If that was going to happen... According to the prayer that Jesus prayed, it was only going to happen by the power of the word. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says, Now they know that everything you have given us is from you, because I have given them the words you gave me. Notice the foundation of the word. Now look at verse 14. Notice what he says. I have given them your word. Again, the word is foundational. And then in verse 17, Read further, sanctify them by the truth, and as if it wasn't clear, your word is truth. The word was going to be the foundation of everything that was going to happen through their lives. You see, this theme of the word is interwoven throughout this entire chapter, really. Now, there's something that I think we fail to recognize about what's happening here. I find that most people have a misunderstanding or a misconception of how the Bible came into existence. It's an important concept, so I want to make sure you get it. It wasn't as if someone was sitting there next to Jesus and listening to his prayer and recording verbatim what was happening. And guess what? They didn't have a video camera either or any kind of recording device to capture these moments. But guess what? There were men of God, these disciples that were with him, who were so moved by the Holy Spirit that this was remembered. 
that this prayer was remembered and by the power of the Holy Spirit in a way that I cannot describe to you, but only by the grace of God and his power, this word came to be. And it is inspired by God himself. And it has absolutely no error in it. Now let me show you how God answers this prayer, that the word is foundational. Understand, when he's praying this prayer, Matthew and Mark and Luke, guess what? They weren't there yet. Okay, So when he's praying about the word being the foundation, the words that Jesus had given to the disciples, he was praying about something that wasn't yet written down. But guess what's good news? Turn to John chapter 20, just a couple pages over. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 30 and verse 31, we find a beautiful testimony of the impact that these words had made, how it impressed upon these disciples' hearts the truth of the gospel. Notice what happens. This is the writer of the gospel speaking here. So everything else has taken place, and and John writes these words. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. Again, not everything was written down, but the essential things were written down. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see, John, the one who wrote this, guess what he was? He was the object of Jesus' prayer at this moment. He was one of the disciples. And, God, and Jesus prayed and he said, God, listen, let these words be the foundation of everything that happens henceforth. Let these words be what drives them forward as your people. And so guess what John does as he's moved by the power of the Spirit in an answer to this beautiful prayer, he gives us this beautiful word. Isn't that cool? I love it. I love it. The word was the means of their growth. But secondly, the world did not hinder their growth. The world did not hinder their growth. God answered this prayer. The world did not hinder their growth. Listen, I'm going to read chapter, uh, verse 9 down through verse 16 to you. Listen to the how Jesus prays. So follow along with me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, because they are yours. Everything I have is yours, and everything you have is mine, and I am glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, circle verse 12, circle verse 12. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you've given me. Then he says, I guarded them, and not one of them is lost except the son of destruction, so that the scripture may be fulfilled. Now, that's Judas, okay? Judas betrays Jesus. He is the son of destruction or the son of perdition. Some translations render it, and he's going to betray Jesus. But he's talking about these 11. He says, now I'm coming to you, and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy completed in them. I have given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I am not praying that you take them out of the world. That's key but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is the truth. I want you to understand a few things. We're talking about how the world did not hinder their growth. Their setting was not going to change. Did you catch that? 
their setting was not going to change. Jesus did not say, he specifically said this. He said, I'm not praying for you to take them out of the world. In other words, their surroundings are going to be exactly the way that they are now. They're going to still live in this world. And guess what? The enemy did not change either. What did he say when he was praying? He said, there's an evil one. Did you catch that? So the setting's not going to change, and the real enemy is not going to change. Those two things are not going to change. But guess what else didn't change? He said, I'm asking you to protect them as I have protected them. Church, listen. Just like their setting didn't change, our setting hadn't changed. Listen, just like their enemy didn't change, our enemy hadn't changed. But guess what? His protection didn't change for them, and it hadn't changed for us either. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 20, the last words Jesus spoke that we have recorded in his earthly ministry. He says, remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then poof, he went to heaven. He said, now wait a minute. If you're the disciples in that moment, you're thinking, you said you're with us. What do you mean you're with us? You just left us. That would have been my question. But guess what? We find as we read a little bit further in the book of Acts, we find the gift of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and God says, this is my presence among you. And guess what? God answers that presence that, that after the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, when the whole world was falling apart and the whole world was against them, again, their setting didn't change. After everything went amiss, the church still went out, we find in Acts 8, 4. And the word still went forth. Nothing changed about who they were in Christ Jesus. Finally, their joy was the evidence of their growth. Their joy was the evidence of their growth. There's a little nugget in verse 13. It's only mentioned once. And I'll, I'll just confess something to you. Every commentary I read this week, none of them highlighted this, so I'm probably on an island on this one, okay? But that's okay. Because I, I, it really resonated with my heart, and I hope it does yours as well. Notice what it says in verse 13. He says, I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy completed in them. You see, their joy was going to be the evidence that they had grown. Now, I want you to understand something that happens right after this. And, and, and Jeremy gets to preach on this next week. It's not going to be quite as encouraging, I don't think. But listen, in, in John chapter 18, we find people making various decisions about what they're going to do with Jesus. And unfortunately, we find the disciples, the very ones Jesus is praying for here, it seems like God had messed up in answering this prayer. Because guess what Peter did? The one closest to him, it would seem. He betrayed him, right? He, he, he denied knowing him, not once, not twice, but three different times. It would seem as though God didn't hear this prayer that they would grow into maturity. But thankfully, the story didn't end there. Write this scripture down. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 13. Peter, the same Peter that denied knowing Jesus three times, he says this in the face of persecution. He says, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ. So that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. My, how Peter had changed. What had changed for him? The resurrected Jesus. The resurrected Jesus. You see how all this does fit together? 
You see how Jesus, in his work, he paints a clear picture of the glory of God. And he says, listen, I'm going to protect you. He says this in this prayer. Listen. And then he continues and he says, your joy is going to be complete. Your joy is going to be complete. All right. Verses 20 through 26. Jesus didn't just pray for himself or for his disciples, but Jesus prayed that his church would unify on mission. Jesus prayed that his church would unify on mission. See, the emphasis of this prayer is very clear in verse 21. He says, may they all be one. And again and again in these verses, he talks about oneness with God and oneness with each other. I don't want to spend too much time here, so let's go through it quickly. Jesus emphasizes two ways that we are unified. Two ways that this is possible. The first one is this. Our shared relationship with Jesus unifies us. Our shared relationship with Jesus unifies us. Notice how he describes this in verses 21 and 22. He says, May all of them be one as you, Father, and, and are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. You say, now wait a minute, how am I in Jesus and he's in me? And I remember in Vacation Bible School talking about Jesus coming to live in my heart. What does this really mean? You see, in John chapter 15 and verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, you're going to bear much fruit. You see, there's this, what it means to be one in Jesus, there's this, this codependent relationship. We as his witnesses and as his vessel, but he as our strength and as our power. You see, when we trust in Jesus and we're found in Christ, everything changes about who we are. That's how every one of us, we look across this room today. We've got moms and dads. We got some that are old and maybe you're denying it. That's okay. We got some that are young and they think they're older than what they are. We got some that, that work a blue collar job and some that work a white collar job. Some are managers and some are just hirelings and they're working on an assembly line or whatever. Listen, we all have these different places in life, but the, what, the way we unify together, first of all, is we're all one in Christ Jesus. It's because of that common belief in Jesus that we can gather in this room together and say that we're one, that we are his church. Think about it like this. The air is in the bird, and the bird is in the air. You ever thought about that? The bird's flying in the air. Guess what? He's breathing air in his lungs. What about this? The water is in the fish, but the fish is in the water. How's that work? You see, it's a mystery. We don't understand all of it, but guess what? We're found in Jesus, and it unifies us. Finally, we see this. Our shared love for the lost unifies us. I love what Jeremy said earlier when we were talking about giving. He was saying, listen, two things that we're about. Loving God, right? That's being unified in Jesus, knowing Jesus, and we love other people. Right, we got to love the lost. In verse 23, notice what he says. He says, I'm in them and you're in me so that they may be made completely one that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you've loved me. Listen, he says, so the world may know me. That's what he says. 
He tells his disciples, he tells them, listen, they're going to know that you're mine by your love for one another. He says, listen, it's all about the mission. There is nothing that can destroy a church quicker than disunity. There is nothing that can tear down the testimony of the gospel in a community than disunity in a church. I want to acknowledge the obvious. We live in a very small community. Now, I've been told again and again not to call it a small community, but a small city. It is the city of Cave Spring. I'm working on that. Y'all smack me upside the head every time I call it a community. And because we live in such a small place, everybody knows everybody. And guess what? We probably know most things about everybody. People know things about us that we don't even know about ourselves. And before we even know it. That's why I want to emphasize this so clearly to you as the church. There can be nothing more important for the testimony of the gospel in this place than our unity. We've got to be unified. And guess how we do that? We're one in Christ Jesus, and we're one in our love for the world. We're one in our love for those that are not in here this morning. If we unify around Christ and his mission, we cannot go wrong. Two questions I want to leave you with. Number one is this. If Jesus prayed, shouldn't we also pray? Understand, everything's about to fast forward in Jesus' life over the next few days. But he pauses for just a moment. He calls out to the Father for help. He prays for himself, his disciples, and for us. They're going to live some 2,000 years later. If Jesus, the Son of God, was urged to pray, shouldn't we also pray? I fear that some of the least praying people in the world are Baptists. It's true. I'm not talking about just coming in here and bowing your head and going through the ritual with me on Sunday when we do the pastoral prayer. No, I'm talking about daily Spending time alone with God and calling out to him and living in relationship with him. But secondly, last question. If Jesus' prayers were answered in such abundantly clear ways already, shouldn't that give us confidence as his people? Knowing that he prays for us constantly. He prays for our unity. He prays for our flourishing and the furtherance of his kingdom through us. As we respond in just a moment, I encourage you to pray right where you're at. Pray and ask God that he would would use you as a part of his mission. Pray and ask God to bless his church with unity around him and the mission of God.